You're listening to the Bravehearted Voices podcast. In this podcast, we feature sermons that deeply stir us toward Jesus Christ and living fully for His glory. As you listen to this powerful collection of communicators from yesteryear, it is our desire that you be stirred to live a life fully given to Jesus Christ and discover a Christianity that actually works. Amen. Okay, so as you guys know, I've been walking through the parables, and we've got quite a few parables left. So I, I may be another year in the parables. We'll see. Or a couple years. We'll find out. Uh, but I want to give a little bit of background before we dive into this parable, and we'll see if you can guess which parable it is by the time I, I'm done giving background on it. But the name of this message is really, I, I'm not convinced I love this name yet, uh, but the name is just really simple. It's the fruit tree. Okay? And that, that sort of gives away a little bit of a parable. Uh, but the fruit tree. So I want to look at Genesis chapter 1 to give a foundation for how we think about this. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. And I want to look at the first 10 verses first, and then we're going to look at a couple more verses after that. Uh, but the t- first 10 verses of Genesis chapter 1, of course, you, you have the beginning of creation. You have any beginning was God. And, and then God begins to create things, and he creates the universe. He creates the earth. You, you see these things going on. And then sort of how I'm going to describe the first 10 verses of Genesis chapter 1 is that God creates the universe, and then he creates an environment for life. Does that make sense? Uh, he, he creates an environment where life can, can be formed. And so let's, let's read this. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of a deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And so it was, and God called the dry land earth, and gathering together the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So here you see God's created, he's he's created the universe, and then he's created the earth, and and we see that, that you have this idea that he's created light, and then he's created water, and then he's created the dry land which is that which is necessary for life. And of course, you could also say heat, which comes from the light that he creates. And, and so you have this environment for, for life that God has created. And then, on the third day, it says this, And then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. So he's created this environment for life, and now he's creating this life that, that's going on within this earth. It says, And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now, now if you just pause for a second and think about fruit trees, isn't it such an extraordinary thing? That, that here you have this tree, and, and of course this tree is, is planted in the earth, and it takes the nutrition from the dirt, and it takes the light from the sun, and, and, and the, the nutrients from the water, and this, the, the sustenance from the water. And, and over time, this, this tree 
bears this fruit. And, and it's amazing because this, this fruit now has this seed within itself, is what it talks about. And, and so as this fruit then falls to the ground, some of it's appreciated by us, some of it falls to the ground. And as it, as it falls to the ground, it reproduces itself. Can you imagine? Man has never made something like this. That, that man has never made something even close to this. Imagine you go to the grocery store and it's like, hey, buy this thing that we've made, and it's just an everlasting source of food for you. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? And yet God, here, you have this, this amazing thing. And of course, we, we all get used to it, so we sort of take it for granted. But we have this marvelous thing, a fruit tree. And, and it's got a seed within itself, so you can eat it, or you can let it fall to the ground and plant, and, and pretty soon you've got a whole other tree that's springing up, which is going to produce a whole bunch more fruit. And, and God looks at this, and he, and he sees that it's good. And, and today we're going to be talking about this idea of fruit, and looking at what does the Bible say about fruit, and, and fruit trees. But if I could say it this way, uh, there's a tree that, that produces fruit, um, and, and the fruit tree that I want to first and foremost talk about is the cross, if I can say it that way. But here you have this tree, and, and that which comes out of this tree is a fruit, and the, and the fruit of that is going to continue reproducing through the generations and ages under the glory of God. And, and I want to look at this idea a little bit. Uh, in John chapter 12, it says this, starting in verse 20, it says, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. And when they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. This is right before he's about to go to the cross. It says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will also be. Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had, fu- said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Uh, that the idea of the death of the cross was that somebody was lifted up from earth. And, and the idea in the Old Testament of this is that that was an accursed person is the idea. Because it, they would say that the person was neither fit for heaven nor fit for earth. And of course he bore that curse that, that was rightfully due to us upon that tree. Uh, but, but here he talks about this idea that, that his hour has come, the hour for which he was here on earth, which was the hour for him to be crucified. That hour has come, and he says, unless a grain of wheat falls on the ground and dies, it remains alone. Just, just one grain of wheat. And yet, if it, if it falls on the ground and dies, it bears much fruit. And, and this, of course, is talking about him at the cross. That here the Lord Jesus goes to the cross, he's lifted up from the earth, and having been lifted up from the earth, he's drawing men in himself, and this grain of wheat that begins to multiply, this, this fruit tree that, that multiplies and bears fruit in the earth. And if you were to ask, what is the fruit of the tree? I think Isaiah 53 gives us a little peek in this. It, it, it talks about this. It says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Isaiah 53 is a picture of the cross. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but it's a beautiful picture of the cross. So it's a, a prophecy. So it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. 
when you make his soul an offering for sin. So let's talk about the, 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 the Lord making his soul, the Lord Jesus became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him, right? And, and so he, he makes his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Isn't it interesting? Here it is. Jesus falls on the ground and dies and says he's going to see that which comes out of that. The, the seed is planted in the fruitfulness. It says he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And if you ask the question, what is the labor? What is the seed that comes forth? It's the church. That he is the firstborn among many brethren. That, that he is the one who, who, who dies and, and is that tree that then sheds forth seed, the labor of his soul, which shall justify many because he bears our iniquities. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And, and, and to recognize that you and I, as the church, we are the fruit or the labor, or the fruit of the labor of Christ upon the cross. And, and he sees that for which he labored. He sees the fruit of his labor, and he's satisfied. And, and is he not worthy to look at the fruit of his labor and be satisfied with it? And, 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 and to be satisfied with that which came out of his death and his sufferings and his labor. Now, going back to Genesis chapter 1, remember that the, the created pattern of God is that there's a tree, a fruit tree, whose seed in itself is in itself and bears fruit after its own kind. And so here we have this tree known as the cross, and, and truly this is the tree of life, or at least a picture of the tree of life, because it's only he who comes to the cross and partakes of the fruit of that tree. Uh, which is a, a neat picture. We're going to do communion later. What a, what a cool picture of it. But it's only he who comes and takes of that tree who can have life in himself. And yet, this is also a tree which reproduces. Uh, but you recognize that, that a tree reproduces after its own kind. Uh, that the fruit tree has the seed within itself to go on reproducing itself. To go on reproducing after its own kind. Uh, that you don't have an orange tree accidentally produce an apple. Even though somebody in our generation, probably a lot of people in our generation would tell you that. It doesn't work that way, right? Uh, but, it, but it produces after its kind. And, and so then the question that we have to ask is, is what sort of fruit is the cross going to produce in your life and mine? And, and the answer to that question is, it's going to bear fruit after its own kind. Because that's always what trees do. Trees always reproduce after their own kind. So if I want to know what sort of uh, fruit I'm going to see in the Christian's life, all I have to do is look at the tree and say, that's the kind of, because the seed came from that tree, therefore that's the sort of, and, and, and so you have this, this tree, this cross of life that's going to go on reproducing fruit after its own kind. In Luke 14, you guys know this passage, it says, now great multitudes went with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That, that who are the people who are going to follow after him, the disciples that are going to be his, they're going to they're have their own cross because they're going to bear fruit like his after the same kind which seed is in itself. In 1 John 3.16, it says by this, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. 
And we also ought to lay down our lives for brethren. See the fruit reproducing? That, that how do we perceive or how do we know love? We see it in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we know what love is. We see it there. And, and, and we see the love of God there and him laying down his life. And he says, now we also ought to lay down our lives. That the fruit that it produces will look like the tree that it came from. Like our, our master. You have this idea throughout the, the scriptures of this idea that the point of a disciple is to become like his master. That, that's the entire point. In Matthew 10 it says this, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of a house of Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? <laughs> it, it was nice until it got to that point. Because uh, then again, he says, yeah, well, if they're going to call me Beelzebub, how much more those who are my servants or those of my household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Uh, in Luke 6, it says this, and he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at a speck in your brother's eye and do not perceive a plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove a plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is from your brother's eye. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of a good treasure of his heart brings forth Good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of a heart the mouth speaks. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? You see sort of a flow of logic here? That he says, the, the, the point of a servant is to be like his master. The point of a disciple is to be like his master. That's the whole point. And he says a good tree doesn't bring forth bad fruit, or a, a, a bad tree, good fruit. That can't happen. And he says, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? Because this, this doesn't work. If it's a good tree, it's going to produce good fruit. If it's a bad tree, it'll produce bad fruit. But why do you act one way with your mouths, but do something different? Whoever comes to me and hears my saying and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation of a rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately fell, and the ruin of that house was great. And the difference between the two was not what they knew or what they heard or what they said, but what they did. That the fruit was, with one was consistent which, with that which was its foundation, and the other wasn't. Uh, and so you have this idea that the gospel is meant to produce fruit. That the gospel is like a tree and it's going to go on producing fruit, and it's going to produce fruit after its own kind. It's not going to produce a fruit that's different than its own kind, but it's going to produce a fruit that's consistent with the gospel. Just a few passages that give us this idea of fruit in the New Testament. Romans 6, it says, But now, having been freed from sin, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness, and the end everlasting life. In Galatians 5.16, it's comparing the fruit of darkness with the fruit of the Spirit. It says, and I say, and walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 
Now the works of a flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, and heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things, those who have such fruit, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of his spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Ephesians 5 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and having no, un, no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather exposing them. Uh, you have this picture in Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel is, is sort of his book primarily of judgment against the people of God. The, the context of the book of Ezekiel is that the people of God, uh, uh, the, particularly the tribe of Judah, has been exiled um, from Israel. Jerusalem's been cut down, the temple's been torn down, and they're in desolation, and they're in a 70-year captivity in Babylon during the time of Ezekiel. And so he's here, and, and I want to say it was 25 years in the captivity, if I remember correctly, that they're there in Babylon, and he's on this river, and the Lord takes him in chapter 40 in a vision to this city, okay? And the last eight chapters of Ezekiel are a vision of this city, and, and he's showing them all sorts of different stuff about the city. But then he goes into a temple in the city, and, and this is a picture of his temple, it's a picture of, of Christ and his church, and it's this really neat picture. But you have this river that's flowing out of the temple. And, and this river flows out of the center of the temple, uh, which is interesting because then, then Jesus stands up at the feast, and remember he says, he who believes in me, out of his innermost, will flow rivers of living water. And know you not that we are that temple of God? So you have this picture of the Christian life. And out of this temple, what's flowing out of there? is this river. And here's how it describes this river. Listen to this. It says, along the bank of a river, on this side and on that, will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. And everywhere where this river goes, it brings an abundance of life. And you recognize that's the Christian life. The Christian life is not one where God says, hey, you need to, to conform to this and, and look like this on the outside. Jesus says, hey, our, our goal is not just to conform to the outside, but that actually from the inside, rivers of living water flow out. And yes, that changes on the outside, but it starts through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as we're clothed in Christ, and that begins to impact every single area. And here you've got a tree that isn't like, like any other tree out there because it bears fruit all 12 months out of a year. And, and its food is good for for." Or it's, it's, it's fruit is good for food, it's good for medicine, and it's going out and it's bringing life wherever it goes. This is a picture of a church in Ezekiel. And so you recognize that an apple tree cannot by its own self-effort produce anything other than apples. You follow me on that? Uh, and, and you recognize that we are bad trees. <laughs> we, we, we are born in sin and we've chosen sin. We're doubly condemned, Right? You're not just a descendant of Adam, but you chose to rebel against God. And as such, we're, we're just producing junk fruit. And, and, and any more than an apple tree can one day wake up and say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to change my mind about fruit. I'm going to now start producing orange fruit. 
And, and let's imagine that Apple is bad for, you know, like uh, Mac computers and these sort of things. Because uh, <laughs> that's the picture, right, of the Garden of Eden is, is the Apple. And let's say that orange is God's perfect righteousness. Uh, I don't even love oranges that much. I should say something I really like. Mangoes. That would be a good one. Yeah, yeah. let's say mangoes, okay? Can you imagine an apple tree one day saying, I'm going to produce mangoes because God told me to produce mangoes, therefore, haven't we, many of us have tried this, right? Where we thought that somehow, if I just try hard enough, and if I just study the scriptures long enough, or if I pray enough, or memorize enough, or, or all good things, by the way, if I just do enough of that, then somehow I'll produce mangoes. But this is impossible. And you recognize that in our natural state, that, that it doesn't matter how hard we try, it doesn't matter what sort of self-effort, what sort of sermons we hear, what sort of preacher we have, what sort of church we go to, that if I'm in the natural man state, born of Adam, I cannot produce mangoes. I'm stuck with apples. I'm stuck with sin. And, 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 and I might do some things that look good, and I might do some charitable things, and I might seem like a good guy, but I'm still producing the fruit of being born in Adam. And, and so that tree actually has to be, if I can say it this way, born again of a different seed. And, and as it's born again of a different seed, now all of a sudden, it can produce that which is like that seed. And that which was able to not produce in its own strength can now produce a totally different fruit. That this is the sort of fruit that the gospel produces in our lives. It's a fruit that the world can't produce. It's a fruit that Adam can't produce. It's a fruit that can only happen through being born again of, of his seed, of, of his lineage, of Christ. Which, of course, is the picture of entering into Christ. Is that we are no longer in Adam. We're no longer born by the seed of Adam. But we're born, again, in him of the Son of Man. Of a totally different lineage. And, and being born again in him, we can now produce this fruit unto righteousness. Uh, in, in Romans chapter 7, it gives a slightly different analogy, which isn't necessarily this idea of being born again, but, but I'm going to say it this way, is this idea of in marriage, knowing unto fruitfulness. If I can say it that way. It says in Romans 7, Therefore, my, children, my brethren, you also become dead to the law for the body of Christ. So it's talking about this idea that, that the, the covenant with the law was broken off through the death of Christ. Okay? That you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. But now having entered into covenant with him, you recognize that, that our knowing of him, just like in marriage, when, when a man and woman know each other, it produces fruit. In the same way, our knowing of Christ, the, the natural result of that is to be producing fruit. That this isn't something I do on my own. Uh, can you imagine? Uh, in our generation, we do crazy stuff. But can you imagine, you know, me as a single, I'm not single, I've got a lovely wife, but let's imagine me before I was married as a single guy. And I says, I, I want to produce fruit. I want to have a baby. That doesn't work <laughs> on my own. I can't do that. But you recognize from the knowledge of Christ that that actually produces fruit. And, and, and you recognize that, that many of us have done this. That we can try on our own, in our own self, just like that apple tree, and yet it will never happen. That we must be born again. We must come into knowledge of relationship with Christ, and, and that then produces fruit unto the glory of God. So, now we're going to get into our parable. So turn with me to Luke chapter 13, if you have your Bibles. And, and this is where we're going to spend some time today. That's all just foundation, okay? So we're, that's sort of foundation about how we think about fruit. And now we'll look at the parable... Maybe some of you have a guess of what parable it is at this point. So Luke chapter 13, you have a story that's told. 
says this starting in, in verse 6. Luke chapter 13, verse 6. And he spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that you can cut it down. This is a parable we're going to look at today. Now I want to give you the context for this. So go to, cha- go to chapter 13, verse 1. Okay, so this is five verses earlier. And, and this is sort of the context in which he gives this parable. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. We don't have any historical account. We don't have any other count of this except this right here. So we don't really know details, except that it appears that there were Galileans and, and Pilate had mingled their blood to sacrifices. What this exactly looks like, there's a lot of speculation. I, I don't want to speculate. Uh, so we're not going to get into that necessarily. And then Jesus answering said unto them this, Suppose ye that the Galileans were sinners above all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, or no. But except you repent, you shall also likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, or no. But except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. So you have these two stories, which are modern times events that were happening then, that Jesus points to, to bring at this point. And, and, and it appears like when they were telling him the story of the Galileans, that they wanted Jesus to come to some conclusion like, oh, that was maybe God's judgment on them, or, or some sort of zealous, we don't know exactly what they were trying to do. They were probably getting to him to side in some political thing, or some uh, you know, zealot thing, or whatever. And, and, he, and he looks at them. And he says, do you think because this tragic thing happened to them, or, or do you think because this tragic thing happened to those upon whom the tower fell, these 18 men, do, do you think that that makes them worse sinners? And he says, no. And if you don't repent, a similar kind of judgment, not the same thing, but a similar kind of judgment will come upon you as well. That, that he points to this modern event that they seem to take as a sign that these people were sinners, and he says... It's sort of like the context of take the, the, the log out of your own eye first. He says, and he turns it on them and says, if you don't repent, you're in the exact same spot that they're in. So it seems like they were in this mindset of looking at those around them and saying, oh, they must have been really bad sinners. God did this. They must have been really this. And yet we, they weren't looking at themselves and allowing the, the, the Holy Spirit and the word of God to search them and to expose that which was in their lives. They seem to be ignorant of the long-suffering and patience of God towards them and, and, and not having that same long-suffering and patience towards those around them. That's, that's what it seems like. And, it, and his, his warning to them is repent. And then he gives this parable. And he talks about this fig tree that was expected to bear fruit. Now, now I was thinking about this question, why three years? Like, why was it three years? And, and it, I was, I've been reading through the, uh, the scriptures Matthew Coleman and I think David, are you doing it with us? Maybe not. Uh, sorry, I shouldn't ask you that in front of everybody. A uh, couple of us are like, we're doing a program right now just reading through the Bible in 60 days. It's not really a program, just, just enjoying that together. It's been really fun. So I was thinking about this three years this last week, and then I was reading through the book of Leviticus, 
And, and I read this passage and I thought, that is so interesting. So let me read you this. It says this in, in Leviticus 19.23. When you come into the land and have planted all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as uncircumcised. Three years it shall be uncircumcised to you. It shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, a praise to the Lord. And in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit, that you may yield to its increase. I am the Lord, your God. So, so it seems like, like very likely, because this would have been a cultural thing at that time. They were following the law of God. Jesus would have known this. But very likely, at the end of three years, he's coming. Now, we don't know, is this the fourth year? Like, did he look for fruit three years, and then he's coming at the end of the fourth year? I don't really know. We, we don't know, or is it the end of three years? We're not sure. But very likely, he's coming after that uncircumcision period, and, and he's seeing, is there fruit now? Whether it's fruit unto God, uh, or maybe it's at the point where he could eat it, we don't know. But he's saying, there's supposed to be fruit at this point. Why do I not see fruit? We don't know if that's exactly what he was referring to, because it doesn't say in the passage, but that's probably likely it, based upon the context of what God commands. But he comes to it, and he sees that there's no fruit, and, and he has a just condemnation of the tree. The condemnation is, cut it down. And you recognize that he is just in doing this. In the same way that the Lord would be just in cutting you and I down. That, that in our natural state, producing fruit of unholiness and fruit unto unrighteousness, producing apples when he called us to produce mangoes and created us to produce mangoes, if I can continue with that illustration, he, he would be just to cut us down. And, and, and there's this pronouncement against this tree. Uh, there's a, a sign that I could say it this way over the tree saying this tree deserves to be cut down. It's a waste of land to allow this to continue. This, this tree has a just pronouncement over its life. And yet here you have this picture, which is a picture of Christ interceding on behalf of this tree, which justly deserves to be cut down. And, and he comes and he says, sir, let it alone another year. Let, let, let's, let's, let's see if it will bear fruit. This tree's had three years. Right? It's not like the tree, it's not like he's expecting it in an unfair manner. He justly deserves to be cut down. And yet the appeal and the intercession that you see from Christ is, let it alone another year. Let, let, let it alone another year to see what might happen. And, and of course you have this picture of Christ in that. And, and what a, a comfort to see that, that our Savior is interceding and desiring. And, and, and his end goal is because he wants to see fruit on this tree. And, and here he's interceding and saying, would you show mercy for another year to this, this, this tree? Maybe then it will bear fruit. Now you have this really interesting picture in the Old Testament that I want to take you to. Because it's, it's, it's a picture of Moses doing something very similar. And, and what it says in the Old Testament is that the Messiah who would come would be a prophet like Moses. And, and he was going to be similar to Moses, but greater than Moses. And, and Hebrews talks about that passage as well. Okay, so this is in Numbers chapter 14. And, and this is an extraordinary picture. So, so Moses, to give you the context, Moses has sent out the 12 spies to go check out the land of promise. They're in the wilderness. He sent the spies out. The spies go in and, and they come back and, and they've got some good things to say about the land. There's this massive fruit and we'll read about that in a little while. Uh, but, but they also have some scary things to say about the land. You know, the sons of Anakim live there. There's giants. There's 31 hostile nations. There's no way we can do it is what the 10 spies say. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, are faithful to the Lord and they say, no, the Lord is able to give us the land. He's promised it to us. Let's go up. Um, but the congregation listens to the ten. They were a democracy. And, uh, and, and they, here's what they do. 
starting in verse 1 of Numbers 14. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or only we had died in this wilderness. What a people. (laughs) Doesn't sound like us. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothing, and they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Now, now just picture here, there's over 600,000 men, and, and who knows how many women and children. This is a massive people, and the whole congregation says, let's stone these men. No wonder Moses then later writes, I, I just imagine him writing about him being this humble man. Uh, does it say the most humble man? I forget how it says it. I think it says most humble man, right? And, and can you imagine he's writing that and the Holy Spirit it moves him to write that? And he's like, Lord, can I write that? Uh, he's like, yes, write that. Uh, he keeps writing. No wonder. It's, can you imagine this, this, this man, 600,000 men, and who knows? I don't know if the women and children were part of his vote or how that worked, are all saying together, stone them. I feel like, let's get out of here. Let them do their thing. And, and yet, look at Moses' response to this. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed amongst them? He could justly demand fruit at that point. I mean, think about all the things he's done. From, from delivering them out of the hand of, of Pharaoh and Egypt, bring them into the wilderness, he's provided for them, manna, and, and, and sandals for their feet, all the faithful things that God has done amongst them. And he says this, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make you a nation greater and mightier than thee. Now, if you're like the people who came to Jesus with the story of the Galileans, your answer is probably, Lord, they deserve, <laughs> they deserve judgment. Cut them off. I mean, he just offered to Moses to become a new patriarch, basically. And he says, I'm going I'm I'm to disinherit them, I'm going to kill them all, and I'll start over with you, Moses, because these people are unbelieving. Imagine if the Lord said it to you. How would you respond? And here's what he says. And Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear it, for by your might you brought these people from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands above them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard your fame will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land which he swore to give them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. Moses is not worried about his skin. I mean, he's right now in danger of being stoned. He's not worried about his reputation. He has none. He's worried about what the people will think about the Lord. He says, And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, 
just as you have spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And the Lord said, I have parted according to your word. But truly, as I live, all of the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. See this picture? But here you have Moses, a people that rightfully deserve to be cut down. And, and, he, and he's pleading, Lord, w- would you pardon them according to your, to your mercy? And of course, we have a Lord who ever lives to intercede on our behalf and is desiring to bring men and women to repentance. It says in 2 Peter, it says this, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Some have a promise that he's going to return, the second coming of Christ, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See the parallel with this passage? The, the, the end goal of this passage was repentance. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will also be like those whom, whom Pilate mingled their blood with the sacrifices. And unless you repent, you will also be like those upon whom this tower fell. And, and, and the Lord Jesus' desire, and, and, and you see this desire and this long-sufferingness and this waiting to return because he desires to see repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will, will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And then he continues on a little bit more. Considering that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And so again, here you have this picture of of Jesus pleading and saying, give him another year. Give give him another year, and, and perhaps this tree will bear fruit. But you know what's really neat? Jesus doesn't only say, would you give this tree another year? But you see this, this picture that he says, and I'm going to trench around it, and, and, and I'm going to fertilize it. That, that Jesus is not only waiting and long-suffering to see men come to repentance, but he's laboring to see men come to repentance. That the Lord Jesus is laboring to see these trees produce fruit. Not only is he patient for it, but he's laboring for it. And you recognize that he also is laboring for the souls of men, that he is long-suffering and merciful, desiring to see men and women come to repentance. And you recognize that God's purpose in, re- in, in correction is repentance. That that's his, his end goal. Uh, it says in Hebrews 12, now the chastening seems to be joyful, sorry, no chastening seems to be joyful for present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That the chastening and correction of the Lord, his desire, and, and, and he's doing it out of mercy to bring repentance. And I want to look a little bit, what does that repentance look like? In, in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about his correction. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul's corrected them with a letter, and, and, and they sorrowed over this letter, and, and, and they had this, this it, was, it was a fairly fierce correction. And Paul then refers back to that in the book of 2 Corinthians, and he describes 
the effect that this letter produced in their life. And it it describes this idea of, of a godly repentance. Listen to this. It says in 2 Corinthians 7, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. So maybe he, he wrote the letter, and then maybe he was feeling a little bit bad that they were, he, he was so intense on them. I don't know. He seemed to have had some regret over what he wrote, and then he says, but I don't anymore. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made to sorry, you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Let me just, let me read that again. Godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. I I really like the way the King James Version translates that. It says that godly sorrow leads to repentance, not to be repented of. Which I think is a great picture. Meaning it leads to a repentance that sticks it's not a repentance where I, I, I repent and then I repent of my repentance. Or, or I, I repent and then I regret my repentance. Anybody ever gone there, right, where you, you say, oh, I'm never going to do this again. You repent of something and then you, you repent of that and turn back to your sin. But godly sorrow produces a repentance that sticks. It, it's a repentance that's not to be repented of. He says, but worldly sorrow produces death. And, and, and we've all seen this difference between worldly sorrow and, and godly sorrow. That godly sorrow is the sort of sorrow that sees the, the true devastation of my sin. And it sees the true reality of my sin and it produces a hatred of sin. For the fear of the Lord, it says in Proverbs, is to hate sin. And, and godly sorrow produces a hatred of sin. And it produces a true godly sorrow that sees my sin from God's perspective. And I take God's side against my sin. A worldly sorrow takes my side with my sin against God and I feel bad about the consequences. You guys see the difference? It's sort of like the little kid who's, who's crying, not because they, they hate their sin and they see the, the, the devastation of their sin and the affront to God that it is and, and the lack of, of bringing glory to God, but because I got caught and I'm going to get a spanking. You guys know the difference? <laughs> Some of you guys uh, thought that was funny, huh? Uh, <laughs> One fears the consequences of sin and hates the consequences of sin. The other one actually hates sin. And and it's this godly, look at what this godly sorrow produces. He says, for I observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. Think about all these different descriptions. Do we have this sort of view against sin, a diligence, a vindication, a clearing of ourselves? I, I, am, I am not going to allow this to continue my life because of the, the way that it's wrecking havoc and dishonoring and shaming the name of Christ. He says, what, what zeal, what vindication, all things you prove, sorry, in all things you prove yourselves to be clear in this manner. Therefore, over I write to you, over I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong. There was a, a man doing a, an egregious sin. Nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. That, that he wrote to them a hard thing, that, that, that their care might be apparent, and it brought them to a godly sorrow that led to a repentance not to be repented of. And that's Jesus' goal. That, that Jesus desires repentance. 
that he's long-suffering and he's merciful and he's patient and yet he desires repentance. And then the second half of this parable is a little bit scarier, isn't it? Because it's a warning against unfruitfulness. And so on one side of this parable is a comfort to recognize that our God is laboring to see fruit and our God is desirous and patient. But on the other side, to recognize that there is a time when that long-suffering ends. There is a time when that patience will come to a place where God will fulfill his promise and, and, and where God will say, cut it down. And, and that's what you see the Lord Jesus saying, give it a year, I'm, I'm going to labor to see fruit coming. He intercedes on our behalf. He says, but, but after a time, after this season is closed, cut it down because it justly deserves that. And so he is long-suffering, and yet in the end, he will cut down those trees without fruit. In Matthew 7, he says this, You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Isn't it interesting that they're pointing to fruit that seems pretty good? I mean, we think they're prophesying in his name. They're casting out demons in his name. They're doing many wonders in his name. And, and, and in the modern church, we might look at that and say, wow, that's a pretty fruitful Christian. And yet they were practicing lawlessness. They were still walking contrary to the nature of God. And, and, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Because when he looks at their fruit, and so we have to be really careful. This should warn us to go, I can't just look at fruit and, and measure fruit against what I think the fruit of a Christian should be. Because people, these people, they made up a list of the fruit that they thought was good, and yet apparently a bad tree can bear fruit like doing wonders in his name, prophesying his name, casting out demons in his name. There may be certain things that actually a bad tree and a good tree can do. And so we have to look and say, by what, by what measure does he measure our fruit? So that we can look at it through his lens. In Jude, it says this, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's verses 3 and 4, and then he describes these men for a while. And then in 12 and 13, he describes them some more. He says, these are spots in your love feast, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water carried by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of a sea, foamed up of their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Whoa. I don't want to be a tree without fruit. And so as we look at this, we learn two things about the nature of God. A, God expects his creation to function as he created to function. You guys remember Jesus? And he walks up to this fig tree 
and, and he expects to see fig trees, and there's no fig tree, so he curses a fig tree, and then his, his disciples are, are like, whoa, Lord, it, it curled up in one night. He expects his creation to function after the pattern he created in. And, and you recognize as his new creation, as the, the mango tree that he's now produced in me, having transplanted me into his kingdom, he expects me to walk as he's created me to walk. And number two, he's long-suffering. This is part of the, the nature of our God. And, and, and he's promised these three things because he keeps his word. He is, he is saved, right? He, he is willing to save us from our unfruitfulness and to make us fruitful in the kingdom of heaven. He, he is always an intercessor. He ever li- lives to intercede on our behalf. And number three, he will come as a judge. And he will judge those trees which do not bear fruit. And so I think when we read this parable, the question we should be asking is, is what kind of fruit is he expecting to see? What kind of fruit is God expecting to see in our lives? How should we be thinking about fruit in our lives? And by what standard should we judge the fruit in our lives? And again, if you look at the whole context of this, this is, is him responding to those who are looking at other people and saying, they must have had really bad fruit because look, the tower fell on them. And, and he's saying, if you don't repent, you're in the same position. And so this is looking at our own lives and saying, what sort of fruit am I producing? It should cause us to ask these questions. Because it's a scary thing to be in a place of not bearing fruit. So what sort of fruit does he expect to see in my life? And, and, and very simply put, I think the answer to that is, he expects to see a fruit after its own kind. That one born of a kingdom of heaven is going to produce what? It's going to produce fruit like his master. It's going to produce fruit like that, that great fruit tree of the cross. And as that replicates through us and then into others, it's going to be fruit after its own kind. In 1 John 2, Jesus says this, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Now, now we also recognize earlier in that chapter, it says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with Father. He says, my little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. Right? The expectation is that a Christian is going to be walking in victory. He says, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So we know that there's an, a- an avenue by which we can receive forgiveness. We have an advocate with the Father, but we're not walking perfectly in this. And yet he has freed us from sin that we might walk with him. And so the fruit of the Christian life is going to be, if you're abiding in him, you're going to be walking more and more and more like Jesus. And, and your fruit is going to be increasing and looking like him. And yes, it's going to start small, and, and it's going to grow. Uh, we have some pepper plants right now that I've been watching. I'm like watching the pepper plants, and I'm watching the frost state coming. And I'm not sure which is going to come first. They might get cut down without fruit. I don't know. But, but right, that fruit starts really small, but it's bearing fruit. And, and, then, and, and it doesn't grow overnight. It, it, it takes time. And it's going to increase, and it's going to grow more and more, but the fruit's going to be after its own kind. And he says, he who says he abides in him is going to walk like he walked. What's he going to look like? He's going to look like the tree he came from. He's going to look like the tree he's abiding in, because he's coming from him, therefore it's going to bear fruit after its own kind. Jesus talks about this idea of abiding him in the passage we all know in John 15. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Isn't that interesting? No matter where you're at, Jesus is laboring 
to see you bear fruit. If you're bearing fruit, he's pruning you to see you bear more fruit. And if you're not bearing fruit, he's desiring to see you bear fruit, but there will be a point at which he will cut down. You are already clean because of a word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in a vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so you will be my disciples. That this is how he is glorified in our lives. We want to bring glory to God? It's, it's going to happen through bearing much fruit. In 1 John 2, a little bit later from the passage I read earlier, it says, And now, little children, abide in him. And this idea of abiding, this, this means living in him, remaining in him. If, if I say, where do you live? You tell me which house you abide in. That's the idea of abiding. Um, the, the, abiding isn't just a mental state. It's not just a uh, uh, thinking, yes, that's good. But, but abiding is this idea of living in him. And, and, and being in him, and having your dwelling in him, and remaining in him, staying in the house. And he, he says, abide in him, stay in him, remain in him, live in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Again, you see this idea of God's creative pattern, that, that it, it produces fruit after its own kind. But the seed is in itself, and it produces fruit after its own kind. And so the question I want to ask is, is the fruit of the gospel in my life? Am I producing fruit after the same kind of the gospel? Is my life producing the fruit of the cross? Is it producing the sort of fruit that you see in the cross? Or is it producing some other kind of contrary fruit? What kind of fruit is my life producing? And, and, and if you look at your life and you say, I am not producing any fruit. My, my challenge to you is, is God has been long-suffering and patient with you, but he's done that to bring you to a place of repentance. He's desiring. In fact, he's not just desiring, he's laboring to see you brought to a place of repentance. So would you repent? And, and, and that's not a, a long, fancy process. I say turning away, putting those things aside, and, and vehemently with desire and zeal, all the things that are described in 2 Corinthians, saying, I'm putting that away, and, I, and I'm turning to him, and I'm going after him. And, 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 and as you abide in him, he then produces this fruit. And if you look at your life, and you, and you, and you answer that question, you say, no, I see the fruit of the gospel in my life, that the gospel has produced a fruit in my life. Praise God. Are you willing for him to prune your life so that you can bear more fruit? Now, just imagine being a tree for a second. Uh, and, and, and you're, let's say you're a, a really beautiful tree, you know, and, and you've got really nice, lovely leaves. And you've been working on this one particular branch. And, and you've been working a lot on this branch because it faces the crowd. You know, <laughs> you like that one. Uh, it's sort of the front side of, of your tree. You've got a backside too that's like facing the building, but nobody really notices that one. This one faces out towards the street. And, and you've been working on this branch, and it's really lovely looking. And, and the leaves are just perfectly shaped leaves. And, and, and you've, been, you've been, I mean, this thing is a big branch at this point, right? You've been working on it for several years. It started out really small, 
And at this point, it's a sizable part of your life. And, and your master comes along and he says, can I, can I cut that thing off? This is sort of what pruning is like. Uh, I mean, think about it. Pruning is sort of an odd thing. The tree put, it put resource, it put energy. You, the tree could easily say, hey, couldn't you just cut that off before I put resource and energy into that? That doesn't seem fair. I don't want that. <laughs> but this tree's put resource and energy and he's put time and, and, and sap and, and he's taken that which was from his root and he's dedicated to that part of his tree. And the master just comes along and <laughs> cuts it off. Can you imagine? Are you willing for God to do that in the parts of your life that you put energy and resource and time into in order that you might bear more fruit? Because God wants us to bear more fruit into the glory of God. And, and, and perhaps for some of us, we're holding on to that one branch, and it tends to be the people-facing branch. Maybe you just really like the, the you're like an introvert, you like the, the backside branch. But, but whatever the branch is for you, I don't know. Wh- whatever that thing is in your life that maybe you've put time and resource and and, and and, and I don't know what it is, but, but are you willing for the Lord to prune your life? Because you recognize that that, that branch is probably not a wicked branch. That, that there's things in our life that are not sinful, but maybe our weights. And, and there's things in our life that God needs to cut away that are good things even, or not bad things, in order that he might produce more fruit in our lives. And are we willing for the master to come in and say, Lord, I don't maybe understand it. I thought that was my best branch but you're cutting it off, and that's okay. And, 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 and Lord, if I can help you clamp down on the shears and, and cut that off too, I, I'm, I'm willing for you to prune me and to cut off things in my life. And, and you recognize that, that, that Lord can do this sovereignly, right? There's times when the Lord just shuts something down in your life, but there's also times when the Lord's going to do this through you. <laughs> He's going to say, hey, do you see that, that branch you've been working on? That's a distraction for you. You need to cut that thing off so that you can bear more fruit. And, 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 and our response is, yes, Lord. I'm a fruit tree. My whole purpose is to bear fruit. I'm not a branch tree. I, I'm, I'm not here to have pretty branches. I'm not here to impress men. I'm here to produce fruit that brings glory to you. That the, the Savior who died for us would see his seed, would see the labor of his soul, and be satisfied. And, and, and don't you want him to, to look at your tree and go, the cross was worth it because I'm seeing the fruit coming out of it. That's that, right, satisfied with the labor of his soul. Isn't that your desire? Isn't that the highest aim worth living for? Now, here's an interesting thought. In, in, in the way that God produced the fruit, the fruit itself has the seed in it. You guys follow me on that? And isn't that interesting that when God begins to produce the fruit of the cross, I, I sort of see it this way. You have the, the seed, which comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, and this cross that produced fruit. And then that was producing fruit in others and producing fruit in the others down for the generations. And then here we are, and it's produced fruit in us. And, and guess what? When the gospel's producing fruit in your life, the most natural thing in the world is that it's going to begin to replicate in other people's lives around you. It's what naturally happens. Because the fruit itself has the seed. And, and, and it naturally reproduces. Isn't it interesting that we have these things now called GMO seeds or hybrid seeds? Uh, I, I think seeds are really interesting. I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by them. But, but isn't it interesting? We have seeds now that are GMO and are hybrid, and the modern seed doesn't reproduce. You ever planted, like, a, maybe your kids. Like, my kids are always planting seeds. Uh, they've got right now in their, in their bathroom an avocado seed. I don't think it's going to work very well in Colorado, but, but we're laboring at it anyways. We're giving it a try. Uh, we had uh, a couple of the children from India with his little feet at our house, and, and they, we had a mango, and they were like, 
Uncle Philip, we've got to plant the mango tree. <laughs> I was like, okay, let's plant. And they got it actually a little bit. I mean, it came up and then it died. Uh, but, but anyway, you know, it's interesting. The modern seed, the hybrid seed, doesn't have the ability to reproduce. And this is sort of like postmodern Christianity. Many of us have fallen this, haven't we? Where we think, well, I'm just going to sort of bear fruit in myself. And, and, and yet, I don't really want to share the gospel. I don't really want to see produce, life produced in others. I'm going to withhold my fruit unto myself. But the very nature of fruit, the way that God created it, is that it will reproduce. Real fruit always has the seed to continue reproducing after its own kind, after its, its source. In 2 Peter, there's this promise. It says this. It says in, in 2 Peter verse 1, or sorry, chapter 1 verse 5, it says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you recognize that the fruit comes from abiding in him. It's not our fruit, really. It's, it's, it's his fruits that is being born. And yet there's things that he commands us to do in our life and as we obey those things, it actually increases fruitfulness. But your obedience is involved in producing fruit in your life. And here he gives us these things. And of course, faith is a foundation. And he says, add your faith, virtue, and these other things. And he goes through this list. And he has this promise that if you do these things, if you walk obedient to me and doing the things that I've commanded you to do, you will neither be unfruitful nor barren in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That your knowing of him is going to bear much fruit. And so us bearing fruit to the glory of God involves us walking obediently to him, abiding in him, remaining in him, living in him, and then through that he produces fruit unto his own glory. And in Numbers chapter 13, I think we're not going to go there, but you see, this is the one, we read Numbers chapter 14 earlier. So when the spies go into the land, they bring back this fruit. And, and, and the grapevine was so large, or, or the, the cluster of grapes, it wasn't a whole vine, just one cluster, was so large that they had to carry it on a pole between two men. And, and I think many of us, we've begun to think about fruit in terms of standards other than the standard of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I can say it this way, the fruit that the Lord Jesus Christ produces is so large that two men have to carry it between a pole, just one cluster of grapes. And yet, how many of us have begun to look at the fruit of our lives, and instead of judging it of saying, he who abides in him ought to walk like he walked, we say, well, I mean, my neighbor over here, this is the sort of fruit he produces. I'm producing pretty good fruit. Maybe it's a little worse or a little better than his, but it's comparable, so I'm okay. But that's not the standard by which he's called us to live. Because again, the fruit that's going to be produced in me, born of the kingdom of heaven, is not my neighbor, or it's not the guy down the street, but it's going to be fruit produced like the fruit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to challenge us on that. Are we looking at the fruit of our lives and comparing the, the, the fruit of our lives to Joe down the street? Or, or, or maybe, I mean, you're looking at, at 99% righteousness produced out of Nathan Johnson, and you're saying, well, I'm pretty close to Nathan. I'm, only, I'm almost caught up. I'm doing good. Sorry, Nathan. I'm just teasing you. Uh, right? If you look at Nathan, you say, hey, I'm almost like Nathan. I'm doing pretty good. Well, well I'm sorry, but Nathan's not our standard. Eric's not our standard. That's like, that's like, you know, comparing to some other type of fruit. <laughs> I didn't mean it that way. Uh, <laughs> but, but we want to look to Jesus and recognize that the fruit that Jesus produces is astonishing large. It's, it's massive fruit. 
And this is the sort of thing that he wants to produce in our lives. And, and would you go after that and say, Lord, more fruit. More fruit that you would look at my life and that, that you would be satisfied with the purchase of the cross. And so there's, there's something interesting in this parable. There's no conclusion of a parable. Actually, a lot of the parables are this way. He leaves the parable with a question in your mind. What happened to the tree? Don't you wonder? But he tells this parable about this tree. The tree's not bearing fruit. He's been patient for three years. He says, cut it down. He says, give it one more year. I'm going to labor. And, and then after that, if it doesn't bear fruit, I'll cut it down. And that's the end of a parable. And this is like a, a terrible movie line, you know? It leaves you like at the end going, what happened? Did the tree get cut down? Did the tree produce fruit? And, and, and I think why Jesus leaves it that way is because you and I are the ones who finish the storyline. That, that this is now a question in your life and in my life of saying, what's going to happen? God has shown his long-suffering, he's shown his mercy, and now the question is, is are we going to produce fruit? And, 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 and whether you're looking at your life, and maybe for, for some in this room, you look at your life and say, I don't have fruit of the gospel. The question is, is are we going to repent? Because he's, he's lovingly calling you to repentance, and, and he's laboring because he desires to see that in your life. And, or maybe you're looking and saying, my fruit is, is small. I want, I want more fruit. And he's laboring for that and desiring to see you bear much fruit. And he promises that those who abide in him will bear fruit under the glory of God. And so for those who are not producing fruit, if there's any in this room, take careful heed to Christ's warning. Allow him to bring you to that place of godly sorrow and hatred for your sin and repentance from your sin. And for those who are producing fruit... Remember this, that fruit is not a fruit that you created. Any more than an apple created the, the, the mangoes, it was a fruit that was created that, that really was a result of a fruit of the cross. And it's actually his fruit. Uh, it's sort of like in Deuteronomy chapter 8. After Israel, they, they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. They finally, the next generation now comes into the promised land. Nobody except Joshua and Caleb of that generation and they come into the promised land, and, and, and Moses, right beforehand, is going to tell them how to live once they're in the promised land. And he says, once you get there, you're going to have an abundance of fruitfulness, and you're going to have crops, and you're going to have houses. And when you gather all those things in, remember the wilderness, lest you think that you created this fruit on your own. And, and so if we see fruit in our lives to recognize this is his fruit, this is the fruit that is actually coming from, from his seed. This is actually coming from his vine, that he is the one who produces it, and I just abide in him, I remain in him. Yes, I'm involved, I'm obedient, I'm, I'm walking with him, but ultimately it's his fruit. That, that I cannot produce fruit in myself. That I cannot make the fruit that pleases him myself. And so if you see fruit in your life, glory in God. Give glory to him, and, 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 and desire to bring more glory to him. Allow him to prune you, so that you can produce more fruit. We're going we're gonna to enter into communion. I think, Nathan, are you leading us in that? After worship. But, but ponder this thought for a minute. Isn't it interesting? Communion is this idea, we're taking of grape juice, which is the fruit of a vine, but you recognize that, that grape juice is just grape juice. It's not actually the blood of Jesus, but it represents partaking of the fruit of the cross. What a, what a cool picture. And, and, and as we partake of that fruit, we then give him our bodies and our lives, 
and it's this exchange life. What, a, what an amazing picture. And so let's just ponder that as, as we worship him and praise him. This is his fruit. It's not something I can produce in myself. It, it's his fruit that we're bearing unto his glory for his honor and his praise that he would see the labor of his soul, that he would see his seed, and that he would be satisfied. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you for that cross. That cross produced fruit and is going on producing fruit after its own kind. And Lord, our desire is that cross in our hearts and our lives and our daily living would produce an abundance of fruit. So Lord, if, if there's any here who are in a place where they're not producing fruit, Lord, I pray that you would, would gently show us the long-suffering patience of God and bring us to repentance. And Lord, for those who are seeing fruit and realizing a fruitfulness of the gospel, help us to remember that that fruit is not of ourselves, but it's a fruit of your cross and of your work of that great fruit tree in our lives. And Lord, we say, would you increase that fruit? As we remain in you, as we abide in you, Lord, we, we say there's no area of our life that you may not prune. However you want to prune us, whatever needs to be cut off, whatever needs to be sanctified, refined, Lord, would you have your way that you might produce much fruit in us and to the glory of the Father. And Lord, that, that the Lord Jesus would see the church, that he would see our lives, and that he would receive the glory which is due, that the lamb which was slain would receive the reward of his suffering. Because, Lord, you are worthy of that. For we be a people who bear fruit unto you. In Jesus' name. Bravehearted Voices is brought to you by the Ministry of Deeper Christian in partnership with Ellerslie Discipleship. Our passion is to help you grow spiritually by providing Christ-centered resources, discipleship, and training in the Word of God and the victorious life of Christ. Our agenda is to bring back the stuff of old, the sort of Christianity that is lived out with the gusto of heaven and actually and practically works. For more, visit bravehearted voices dot com.